This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. The Humanities Symposia is a series of talks sponsored by the Humanities and Communication Department at Trine University. The symposia allows scholars to share some of their recent research with students and the general public. Our current speaker is Dr. Jeanette Goddard. Dr. Goddard is the chair of the Department of Humanities and Communications at Trine. She received her PhD in Comparative Literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her research focuses on early modern comedies in England, Spain, and Italy. Her presentation today is about an early modern Italian play called The Deceived, and is titled, What You See Is Not What You Get. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming today. So I'm kind of like the more traditional academic, less fun talk this semester. We've had like punk, like music, and then we're going to like go on to like Viking literature and all sorts of fun things in comic books. So this is a bit more traditional, except it's not. Right? We tend to think of old literature as being kind of stodgy, of being a little bit um, dry. This early modern Italian comedy, as my uh, Shakespeare class put it, is a little bit, quote unquote, filthy. Um, <laughs> it's got a lot of jokes, right? It was written collectively by a group of men who are about all of your age. So think about a frat writing a play, and that's about what you get with this. But it's also a really good piece of literature. So good, in fact, that Shakespeare stole the plot. So let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, Leonganati was an Italian play written in Siena, Italy. It was written by a group of people called the Intranati, and it was written in 1532. So we're looking at something that is really old. And it's actually surprising how current it feels when you read it, even though it's really old. Um, a lot of research has tried to figure out who has actually written this more than just this group of people. Um, I think that has to do with our modern notions of authorship, right? That like an author works in isolation and actually owns the thing. And we kind of have this weird notion that something really good and really high quality can't actually pr be produced collectively. But we haven't figured out that that's actually the case with Intranati. It seems to be collective. How many of you have been in TechCom? Right? So you know, you know that something really good can be produced from group work, right? <laughs> mixed, mixed results. But this is actually how a lot of things happened in the early modern period. Even Shakespeare collaborated often. So this play is commonly considered the source for Twelfth Night um, because of the similarities among the characters and the different plot lines. And there's a lot of significant similarities, but also a lot of significant differences that kind of reflect what England in the early modern period would have been like versus Italy in the early modern period. And so if you want to talk more about those differences in the question and answer time, we can do that. You can also like, catch any one of the students in my Shakespeare class, and they'll also be happy to talk to you about the difference. We've got one sitting back there, Caitlin. She can be the expert. Um, but today I want to really think about this Italian play kind of on its own. It's worth thinking about. All right, so based on historical documents and also based on kind of what happens in the play, we know that this play actually was performed during the carnival season. So today, right, when we think of carnival, we think of Mardi Gras, 
We think of what happens in New Orleans. We think of what happens in Rio de Janeiro. And there are elements of that as to what happened during the carnival season in the early modern period as well. Um, but it's also a little bit different, right? It's not quite like this. So it was part of the, this is kind of maybe more what it looked like in the early modern period. So it was part of the liturgical cycle. It's, for those of you who don't maybe know this, early modern Renaissance Italy was Catholic exclusively. And so it followed the liturgical calendar of the season of carnival, followed immediately by Lent, right? So this was kind of the time of the year where people went a little bit crazy. They had a lot of comedies and plays. You ate a lot of really good food. And there was kind of this notion that like things were okay during this time of the year what, that wouldn't have been okay otherwise. Um, for example, there's this notion of upending hierarchies, right? So like fools become kings, kings become fools. And there was a lot of playing with this during the period. And then the idea was that carnival would come to an end, right? Fat Tuesday is when it ends. And then once Lent started, then things went back to normal. All serious and like unpleasant, basically. So this is kind of the atmosphere in which this play would have been performed. And comedies were often performed during Lent. It was kind of a time when people wanted something fun to do. I mean, think about February, right? This is when this happens. How do you feel in February? You want something a little bit more fun and exciting to happen, right? So that's kind of the same idea. And even now, sometimes um, a lot of the Mardi Gras Carnival celebrations will include plays. There's this idea of play acting and deceiving. Even in the masks, has anyone actually been to Mardi Gras? No. If you ever go, there's a lot of masks and kind of play acting, taking on roles, costuming, right? That happens even now. So there is this historical event of carnival. But there's also, of course, the literary scholars who make carnival a bit more... Um, serious because that's what we like to do. We like to take fun things and say, look, we're going to make it serious. Like I do with comedy today, right? We're talking about comedy. We're talking about something funny and ugh, make it serious. So one of the people who was most influential in this was Mikhail Bakhtin. He was a Russian literary scholar who wrote about Carnival and he kind of made it really popular to think about this as a way to think about literature in addition to kind of it being an event. So he wrote... Um, he wrote some things that kind of people follow in terms of carnival. So if you're thinking about a piece in terms of carnival, you tend to look at a couple things. You look at, okay, is the normal social hierarchy destabilized? Is it kind of turned upside down? Are there a lot of people eating and drinking and doing other things with other parts of their body that I'm not going to say because this is going to be on the radio, <laughs> right? So there's a lot of this idea of what kind of enters and exits orifices. That's kind of a big deal. And so I have a picture here of Falstaff from a different Shakespeare play because he kind of embodies this idea of overconsumption and overeating that's a big deal in Carnival. All right. So Bakhtin's most famous book on this, if anyone wants to kind of go research it, which you all look like you really 
are going to go out and do, right? Um, is Rabelais and his world. Rabelais is actually someone that I hadn't heard of until I went to grad school, but it's really fun stuff. So it's basically kind of the French precursor to a novel. And he wrote about two characters, Gargantua and Pantagruel. Gargantua is, based on his name, big or small? Big, yes. He's actually a giant, right? And so he kind of takes these as the starting to think about Carnival, and then he moves into the modern novel. I argue that you can apply this to comedies as well. It doesn't just have to be novels. Bakhtin cared more about novels. Um, so in comedies, characters are often not where they're supposed to be during the actual plot, right? This is even sometimes true in modern comedies, but it's especially true in early modern comedies. You have people running around, you have people cross-dressing, you have people kind of being a little bit crazy, and we're not really sure how it's going to end up. And then at the end, it all works out, right? Everyone kind of goes back to the way it should be, and we get the sense that things aren't going to be crazy anymore, right? So comedies kind of follow this pattern of the carnival and then Lent at the end. Things are back in the normal order of things. Um, maybe, right? I would just put that in for you to think about. Maybe. All right, so this is actually a picture of Gargantua, kind of in some of the things that, exciting things that happen. So if you, if you think the old literature is boring, read this. It's pretty funny. All right, so we're going to think a little bit about the different hierarchies and kind of what happens and what doesn't happen. So we think about the plays in this period as ending all happily, right? And everyone's got what they want. Everything's good. See how happy they are? Oh. And that's true in this play as well. But there are some things that maybe suggest that Lent isn't quite as strong or as structured as we might think it is. And this is, this is the part where everyone who, like, is in positions of power is, make, gets a little bit nervous, right? Because if Lent keeps, or if Carnival keeps going, hmm, hmm, that means the students are in charge, right? Yeah. All right. So we're going to start with um, the fathers. So the fathers are one aspect, I think, in this play that makes the play Carnival-esque. When you think of fathers... Right, we tend to think of this, someone serious, someone somber. The first scene in this play is two fathers who are having a discussion about their daughters. And you would think that this would be them saying, what do we do what's best? How do we be good fathers? They're wealthy men. They're leaders in their community. And what are they talking about? Not that. In fact, they're presented much more like a little bit crazy. Right? So you have one of the fathers who's trying to marry his daughter off to the other guy. And the other guy just keeps making jokes about how, you know, even though he's old, he can still be a good husband to her. And in all sorts of the, like, double entendre sorts of ways that you might assume that that conversation could go. So from the very beginning, the fathers are presented as figures that you don't really respect. And they're presented as really kind of ridiculous. Not what you typically assume is going to be the case, right? 
Um, one of the fathers in particular is kind of based on a character from the Commedia dell'arte in Italy, who is kind of a ridiculous figure. So those of you who don't know what the Commedia dell'arte is, you could still live a good, fulfilled life. You don't need to worry about it. All right? So we start with the fathers and the inappropriateness of their behavior. And this kind of characterization of them as being a bit ridiculous continues throughout the entire play. Um, in fact, Gerardo, the guy who's presented as really ridiculous, the guy who wants to marry this young woman who's the same age as his daughter, um, is so focused on his own marriage that he's actually not doing his job as a dad. Right? His job as a dad is to kind of watch out for his own daughter. And while he's off preparing his own marriage, she's off doing all sorts of crazy stuff because he's not paying attention. So not only does his ridiculousness create comedy, it also creates some significant problems within that society, right? You've got daughters doing all sorts of things they shouldn't be doing. Virginio is the other father. He's a bit more moderate. But he makes some pretty significant mistakes with his daughter, too. Right? So he thinks he's paying attention to her, but he's not. He says, okay, my daughter, I don't really trust the female servants to keep track of her while I'm gone, so I'm going to put her in a convent. And he thinks, okay, I've got her in the convent. She's awfully safe. But no. Right? Because this is carnival. This is a world where things are turned upside down, and they're a little bit different than we might assume. So... The fathers present kind of a carnivalesque view of this play, but so do the women. Because if the fathers aren't the ones in control, guess who is? Right? The daughters and the nuns. They basically, and the servants, the female servants. They kind of run the show. So, while we have um, Lelia in the, in the convent, um, it's not actually a safe, secure environment. And we'll get to that in a minute. So Lelia is the main character in this play. And she's a cross-dressed figure, right? And she's actually the one that they believe started this whole trend. So if any of you have ever read any Shakespeare plays where the women dress as men, they dress as pages, right? This is the first one. The first one that happened in Europe. They think it's kind of the start of the whole trend. Kind of like Iron Man was like the start of the Marvels thing, right? You can trace it back. So we have this figure, um, and whoop, let's see. So in historical Italy, women would not have been allowed on the city, aristocratic women would not have been allowed on the city streets, right? If you were a serving woman, you could kind of run around. But if you were an aristocratic woman, the idea was you had to like stay in your house. And it was actually pretty common for them to live only in their house and then going to church, which was a couple blocks away, and then back to their house. So they lived very kind of limited lives with pretty significant restrictions. What Lelia's cross-dressing lets her do is that she can actually traverse the city streets much more freely than she could otherwise. And so she's able to go here, go there. She's able to kind of follow the man that she loves, which is why she cross-dresses in the first place, and have all sorts of adventures, all while her dad thinks she's safely locked up. He thinks that everything is all good, but he is not right. So um, when she talks to the nuns, 
or when, she, when she's with the nuns, we find out not only do the nuns not keep her safe, the nuns are actually a little bit problematic as well. So the nuns, who people think stay inside the convent, also kind of run around the city streets cross-dressed. In fact, when Lelia comes to them and she says, hey, I really like this guy, and I want to be able to like, hang out with him, the nuns are like, oh, we have clothes you can borrow, and we can teach you how to act like a man, because we do it all the time. All right? So there's like this additional layer of subversion, right? It's not just that the men aren't in control, it's that they think they have these women kind of confined and not at all. They figured out a way to kind of escape, but also to teach other women how to escape. Yes, this, this should be, I don't think it should be a concern for us, but this should be a concern for the men in the play, right? And people watching this would have been like, ha, 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 right? Like, kind of nervous laughter, because it's a little bit disconcerting to think that stuff that's very fixed in your world and you think is very true suddenly isn't. Places you think are secure are porous. All right, so we have Lelia, who's like running around the streets of Madena, and the nuns who've kind of helped her do this, and they're still covering up for her, right? Like her father keeps sending servants to the convent to say, hey, you need to give me my daughter back. And they're like, oh, she's praying right now, right? So they, this is like a long-term cover-up for her. So we expect the fathers in Medina to be in positions of power, but they're both clueless and ridiculous, right? We expect um, the daughters and the female servants to not have a lot of power, but instead they're actually the ones who are able to get what they want and to kind of control how things are moving. And then there's the nuns. And they're the ones who seem to be best able to orchestrate the, situ the situation to get what they want. The other female figure we haven't talked about is Isabella. And we'll talk a little bit about her. She's the other father's daughter, right? So we've got two fathers, two daughters. Um, and Isabella also is able to kind of maneuver and get what she wants. Because her dad isn't watching, right? Her dad's worried about marrying a, a young woman he shouldn't shouldn't be thinking about anyway. Um, but she actually does stay inside her house. But she uses her female servant to kind of go out and bring the young man to her, right? So there are all sorts of ways that these women are kind of maneuvering and getting around the system. The other way that we kind of see carnival happening, in addition to kind of this notion of things being upended, is how disguise kind of works. All right? So we have this notion of no one is who they appear to be. Now this is pretty obvious, right? And in the play, it would be pretty obvious too, right? But in the play, it actually works. So you have this woman running around as a man, and everyone assumes she's a man. And in fact, her father comes face to face with her, and he doesn't recognize her. So the prologue itself to the play actually raises this notion of who's deceived and what that actually means for us. And I think this is actually a pretty interesting and important part that this play um, helps us to think about when it comes to plays in general, but also when it comes to kind of how we structure societies. Right? So the prologue says, and the prologue would have been spoken by a member of the 
Intranati, it's we who are deceived as well as others. So in the um, so this puts both actors and the writers in the position of being deceived, right? It'd be like me, me saying, I'm deceived, you're deceived, but I am too. So it makes you feel a little bit better that I'm also saying I'm deceived, but it also still is a little bit of a slam that you, you're being deceived as well. And the, the prologue makes the connection that you're being deceived because you don't know enough or you don't know better, right? And if you have that knowledge, you actually should be able to figure it out. So that's an additional slam. Because it's not just about you not seeing correctly, it's because you're stupid, basically, is what they're saying. And if you weren't, you'd figure it out. But the problem is that no one figures it out in the play. They all misrecognize her. Her female servant, who's raised her, who's basically functioned as her mother, doesn't recognize her. Her father doesn't recognize her. The guy who like said he loved her before he dumped her and who like dated her for a year and a half doesn't recognize her. So what is it that we have to know? This suggests that like all of us are a little bit stupid, right? At least everyone on stage is. This is something I want you to kind of keep in mind, right? As we kind of go through this play that you can only be deceived if you don't know enough. Because that puts it on you. If you aren't figuring this out, your fault. But not really, right? Not necessarily. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have ever been deceived by someone and it actually wasn't your fault, right? Maybe you thought someone was someone you knew, thought someone was going to behave a certain way, and it actually wasn't your fault. So this play is kind of creating this premise that makes it your fault. Hmm. I don't know if I like that. But the women use it to their advantage, right? All right, so the action of the play continues this idea. So in addition to what we've talked about, there's another scene where the two, there are two servants, one of them who's gone to see Lelia and try to get her from the convent, and another servant are kind of arguing. And this connection between deceit and knowing happens again. So the servant goes to the convent and he tries to like see Lelia because the father wants her back. Right? He's like, I'm back in town. She shouldn't be in the convent anymore. And the women, um, you know, they kind of make a bunch of jokes and try to like get him to forget that Lelia is not there. There's a lot of sexual innuendo in the scene, right? Um, that these nuns are kind of doing whatever they can to distract him from this idea that he's actually there to find Lelia. And the two servants have this kind of interesting conversation where they talk about knowing and who knows what. So we know as the audience that Lily is not in the convent and the nuns are distracting the servant. But he ends up arguing with the other guy about who knows the women better, right? And they're trying to figure out what their agenda is. And one of them's like, well, they actually really liked me. And the other guy's like, really? I don't know about that. And he's like, well, maybe they just wanted to like, have more time with me, or maybe they were protecting Lelia. And so there's this whole conversation that happens that kind of centers around the person who's right in this argument is the person who knows the women best. But we as the audience know they're both actually wrong, because Lelia is not actually there. The nuns are just protecting her and kind of doing whatever they can. 
So the thread of kind of deception and deceit is carried through by Lely in her cross-dressing disguise. And then it's exacerbated in Act 3 because her long-lost twin brother comes along, right? So then you have that really modern comedy thing of like, oh, now there are two of them, right? And the dad doesn't recognize the daughter. He also weirdly doesn't recognize his son, who's only been gone for a couple years. I mean, how much do you have to change in a couple years that your dad doesn't recognize you? This was the part of the play that my Shakespeare class, they're like, this is not believable. <laughs> like, you would know your son, but he doesn't. And then, of course, they get mistaken for each other as well. So suddenly, everyone in this play is deceived, even the main characters, because she doesn't know what's going on, that people are mistaking her for him and him for her. It's like, it's a mess. I thought about kind of giving you guys a plot summary, and then I like looked at everything that happened in the play, and I thought, oh, that would just be way too confusing. <laughs> right? Because it does start to get confusing with how many people are on stage and who's dressed as who and who thinks who's who. It's fun to watch, though. Um, because we as the audience, right, we get to feel like we're actually not being duped. We're the only ones who know what's actually going on. So we have this all happening. There's also the order of desire, right, which also seems to kind of be something that this play is playing with. So the typical order or stereotypes of desire also get turned on their head a little bit. So we might think, okay, we're really interested in this notion of marriage. That's where comedies end, right? That's the actual definition of a comedy is that there's a wedding at the end, the early modern definition. We have different definitions of comedy now. But that's not actually the desire that kind of happens throughout the play. So there are two specific pieces of desire that kind of problematize that. One of them is Lelia's, so the woman who's running around cross-dressed. She specifically says that her desire is to see the guy she loves every day. She never, ever, ever mentions wanting to marry him. However, when he sees her and recognizes, oh, yeah, that's right, you're dressed as a girl now, so I know who you are, he says, you dressed as a man because you wanted to marry me. And she's like, sure, right? So he kind of decides that that's going to be the interpretation, and she goes along with it. It's much safer for her to go along with it, but it's not a desire she's expressed. We also have the desire between Isabella. So you know we have the two fathers, two daughters? Tracking with me a little bit? <laughs> well, the one daughter whose father's trying to marry Lelia and he's not watching her carefully enough, guess who she's in love with? <laughs> she's in love with the girl who's dressed as a man, right? So she kind of falls in love with her. You're all like, okay, yeah. People in 1532, they, they had an imagination. Pretty fun. Pretty fun. And so we have this kind of desire that's happening. Um, and her desire is kind of so strong that her servant keeps talking about it. She's like, she just keeps running from the windows to the doors. We don't know what to do. We can't figure out what's going to happen. And then that's, of course, when Lelia's brother comes in. And so that also gets shifted to a more conventional desire, right? Because Lelia's brother is misrecognized as her, and then he's the one who ends up marrying Isabella, and everything becomes a bit more conventional at the end. 
And that seems to be something that ah, we can all breathe easy about. As long as we don't remember the nuns, <laughs> right? Because we still have them running around at the end of the play. The play does nothing to like confine them or say, like, okay, you know, we've got, we've got everything taken care of. No, no. Nuns are still running around cross-dressing all over the place. So that's an issue that the play doesn't resolve. There's also another issue that the play doesn't resolve. And that's the issue of food. So we haven't talked about this in relation to carnival. But um, with carnival, another aspect of it is just this copious consumption, right? You just eat and eat and eat all sorts of really good, bad food for you, and you eat a lot. You're like, mm, that sounds pretty fantastic, right? Um, and there is a servant in this, in this play that actually does this. So there's a whole scene where they're trying to decide which end to stay at, and he like actually goes into one kitchen, and he's like, oh, there's not much there. And then he goes into the other kitchen, and he says, there's so many soups, so many savories, so many sauces, such great spits of roasted pigeon, partridge, thrush, and goat, capons, boiled meats, roasts, and wonderful macaroni, lasagna, pies. If he were getting ready for carnival or the entire court of Rome, he would still have enough to satisfy everyone. Right, so this idea that, okay, we can eat it all, and it's not going to end, and everyone can enjoy. And so he really kind of, every time you see him in the play, he's like got food, right? So he goes to a fight, and he's got like a big old piece of mutton. He's like, yeah, no, I can fight with this. It's fine, right, as he's eating it. This is another part of the play where the carnival isn't quite, it doesn't quite revert back to normal, right? So we have the nuns who are running around cross-dressed that we're like kind of pretending don't exist. But then we also have the end of the play. And the end of the play, you have this character who loves to eat who says, if you want to come to dinner with us, I'll be waiting for you at the Joker. Right? And that's the inn where there's all this food. He's like, come on, let's go. And so even though comedy as a genre perhaps is saying like, okay, we can only have fun for like this long. Right? And then we've got to like, be serious and get down to work. Right? College is only four years, and then you've got to like, go out and get a job. Right? Um, there are pieces of this comedy that tend to suggest that that's not actually true. There are pieces of this that say, actually, things aren't as transparent as they might seem. The people who think they have the power might not always have the power. We still have the nuns. We're running around cross-dressed that nobody knows about, right? We still have the servant who's like eating copious amounts of food always. And you're not going to be able to stop him. So one of the things that I think this play helps us to think about is what happens if, if this carnival is actually what life is like. We pretend it's not. We pretend that there's an order and that things are kind of controlled and there are certain people in charge, but actually... Maybe it's not quite that organized. Maybe there are ways to kind of subvert the power. And this play, I would suggest, says one of the ways you do that with, is with sight, right? People kind of assume that what they see is what they get. And the characters in this play all play with that and say, but it's not. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. 
Learn more at trine.edu.